Hello and welcome to another episode of That 60s Recording Podcast, the podcast that has conversations inspired by the golden era of recording. This week I have quite a special episode for you. Um, We're moving ever so slightly away from the 60s, um, which I do quite often, let's be honest. Um, I'm moving into 1970, so please forgive me. Um, My guests today are Jason Kruper and Ken Womack, who are the authors of a new book called All Things Must Pass Away, Harrison, Clapton and Other Assorted Love Songs. And the book tells the story of George Harrison and Eric Clapton's relationship from their first meeting in 64 um, right through uh, the the 60s uh, and into the early 70s, culminating in two absolutely seminal albums, uh, In All Things Must Pass and Layla and Other Assorted Love Songs. And the the story itself is pretty, uh, pretty amazing. But then the musical detail that they both go into, um, so I'm talking about uh, Wormack and Krupa, go into uh, in the recording of, of both of the albums is um, absolutely phenomenal. Um, it's it's the most detailed description of, I mean, particularly All Things Must Pass recording um, that exists. Uh, the amount of detective work they've done is unreal. Um, so I'm very excited to have spoken to them about this new book. Um, so yeah, I'm going to dive straight in. Um, just to warn you, uh, I both both of them are present on a Zoom call, and then we lose um, we lose Ken Womack um, towards the end of this first episode. Um, it's not in a big flurry or anything. He just sort of stops <laughs> being involved in the conversation. I think his internet breaks down or something. Um, but the Zoom call ended. Um, which was my fault, but then uh, Ken uh, disappeared off, so I think the the um, the line must have cut. So uh, the first first episode, this one today, um, has both of them, and then next week will just be Jason. <laughs> um, so anyway, here we go, part one of my conversation with Ken Womack and Jason Cooper. There we are. Um, right. Super. So um, I wonder, I mean, it's interesting to me um, initially that there's two two co-authors writing a book. I mean, who came up with the idea of, of the book? And furthermore, how did the process of collaborating on it work for you both? Well, I think that that falls on me. Uh, I had, you know, thinking back several years ago, I... I was looking toward upcoming anniversaries, good way to sell a book. And uh, it was clear that there was a story to be told to me about uh, the summer of 1970 and all things must pass and Layla. And um, at that point, the only important aspect left was to convince a guy (laughs) named Jason Krupa that this was a good idea. (laughs) Yeah, he twisted my arm. Um, yeah, I, I had honestly thought that somebody had done this already and, uh, you know, that the the information was all out there and there wasn't really anything to, you know, any research to do or what it was just, it was a matter of just like pulling things together maybe. Um, and then I looked into it and I thought, oh, this is, and Ken actually said one time, he, he texted me and he said, these sessions are kind of a blank, aren't they? And 
And I thought, yeah, so there, you know, we can really dig into this and, and, you know, interview people and, and, um, yeah, what I wanted to do was, you know, kind of do a Mark Lewis and then walk through day by day with, uh, with the all things, all things must pass sessions. And, uh, you know, I think I was largely able to do that. And, um, you know, and Ken took Layla and, and kind of did the same thing, although all things must pass is much more involved, obviously. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's how that started. Yeah. All things must pass has a much bigger footprint and, and kind of at first, I mean, to be really candid, you were thinking, and, and I was willing to be convinced that, that maybe um, just perhaps the uh, the book should just be all things must pass. Um, but right. I mean, to be fair, we, we kind of yeah. thought that way. Yeah. And I mean, I thought, I kind of thought like, you know, where's the, how do, how are these connected? I mean, obviously they're connected because Clapton plays on, on all things must pass and, and Derek and the Damos come into the picture. But, uh, yeah, I wasn't really sort of getting the connection until we just started putting the pieces together and then it made sense. I think from a, a reader's point of view, it's almost that there is a, cause uh, you know, as you guys have said, all things must pass as a much, much larger footprint. So it takes up a lot, a bit more space um, physically in the book, but there feels like the, the Clapton story is almost like a, a, a sub narrative, if you like, of, of this guy blooming under, um, you probably, I, I, I'm loathe to call it this, but like under George's tutelage almost, but it's not really like that. It's, it's more just, he's blossoming, watching George and being inspired by him. And the book culminates in, in Eric's album coming together. And, uh, so it is, it feels like it's, you know, all things must pass is the, the bigger story, but there's this really lovely understory that sort of comes to the fore and finishes it off really roundly. Yeah. I mean, it, it I, I think maybe not. Yeah. You're right. Tutelage is not maybe the right word, but, but uh, he gives him the opportunity because as you know, we talk about Eric is sort of adrift in the first half of 1970. He doesn't quite know what he wants to do or who he wants to be. And he, he begins discovering, you know, what he wants to do musically as, as his band comes together within these sessions. So it's, you know, it's George sort of giving him the opportunity and the, you know, the interesting side of that is that George really needed Eric there uh, as well as, you know, a lot of other musicians, but he needed that support. You know, he, he was going out on his own. He's taking this big step and he needs sympathetic musicians um, who are going to understand the songs that he's playing for them. How did you, if we talk specifically about All Things Must Pass first, how did you go about trying to even piece those sessions together? I mean, I know we we spoke about um, getting in touch with Alan White and he features quite a lot in, in the, you know, the parts of the book that are about All Things Must Pass and he must have been a good source of information. But it feels like information must have just been scattered everywhere and everything crossed over each other. And how did you even start to separate it all out? Well, it is scattered everywhere. Um, and one, one thing that really helped is Chip Mattinger and, and uh, had written this book called, a, co-written this book called uh, Eight Arms to Hold You, which is about the Beatles solo recordings. And he had the dates of a lot of the sessions in there. So I could make, I could make a timeline from that. 
and then begin sort of filling in information when I would find quotes or when I would talk to people or find an article, um, say in an old music magazine, music paper. And so that, that kind of gave everything a structure, a backbone. And having, having that timeline for 1970 really helped us, I think, you know, put things in order because uh, it, it really is like this information is just all over the place. Um, That's right. And there was some um, on the Layla side, we were very fortunate uh, that Ashley Kahn, who is a really a, just a terrific uh, writer, um, especially about jazz, by the way. Just, yeah, he uh, wrote the um, the Kind yeah. of Blue book, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. That's right. He's That's just a fantastic uh, terrific. And, uh, and anyway, Ashley had done the liner notes for uh, one of the Layla special editions, and he provided those to us. Um, and, uh, <laughs> you know, I don't know that we could have done some of this work. We could not have done the work uh, uh, on the Layla aspect without just his wonderful research because, you know, uh, Jason and I are proud of our, our sleuthing, but it would have been really something to have to go back and try to build a timeline out of thin air. So the Mattinger and, and of course, uh, Khan really made a difference. Right. And Chip, you know, answered some questions too. He was, uh, you know, I feel like I asked him a lot of very tedious detail questions uh, and, and he patiently answered that stuff for us just to get, you know, just to sort of sort some things out, which, you know, even now, once the, the Uber box has come out, even more questions, questions arise and there are more, you know, more details to plug in, but yeah, those, those things really helped. And then, you know, there were other interviews that had, you know, Jim Gordon obviously is in no condition, no condition to be interviewed, but there was an interview from Ken, was that 82 maybe? that interview that I found that had just been made available the year before. That sounds uh, about right. So, you know, things like that, um, that just happened to come in into play at just the right time. We would have access to it. I really, so talking about the book itself, I really enjoy how it starts off in quite a, a story-like way, the way you set the scene with George and then flipping over to Eric. And then it gets really, uh, there's a there's kind of, um, when you get deep into the sessions, it, it's really detailed and I do really enjoy that. <laughs> it's got a, such a nice balance of, of um, kind of uh, storytelling and nerdy music detail, <laughs> which I think is great. You guys balance that really well. We like that that you said that because um, that was a late change in our process. We, you know, the, these books are tough because you have to balance, you know, the, the Beatles geeks like ourselves who know a lot of this already with the many folks who aren't aware of key aspects of their lives, the folks who may be coming to this for the first time or with only a smattering of Beatles or in this case, Clapton knowledge. So that was a tough piece for us to weigh, but we came down on the side of doing that because the, the nature and quality of their relationship and how they develop as young people, which is true for all of us, I think, has a lot to do with the story of these records. And of course, the the so-called love triangle that also exists inside this story. 
Um, we really felt like it needed that. So knowing that that it was valuable to you, who who is so knowledgeable, I think that means a lot to us. Yeah, definitely. It's it set the scene for the albums perfectly. I mean, it all. You know, I I was by the time it got to the descriptions, you know, the sort of detailed music descriptions of the albums, I was viewing them in a different way because of the way that you guys had set the scene, and I think that was really important. Um, you'd be if we can if we can dig into a little bit of that. I think um, I I really liked how one thing I I picked up particularly. So if we start off with George, um, so one thing I picked up particularly is how. Um, you talk about George as being quite self-confident, which I think will surprise a lot of people. Um, what would you, how would you describe sort of the real George, if you like, as opposed to um, the George that people see as, you know, the, a caricature member of the Beatles? You know, what was he actually like as a musician um, observing Lennon and McCartney at work? Well, you know, something that Jason pointed out um, that I was aware of, but him putting it into words really helped. Remember, when you go back to Hamburg, George is getting roughly a third of the lead vocals, right? He is, he's a full-fledged member of that band. The calculus really starts to change when they, when they become Lennon and McCartney, right? With the advent of the Beatles. And suddenly George looks like this late bloomer. Now, in, you know, you can say that he's a late bloomer in terms of his songwriting, but he simply wasn't engaging that part of his craft to the same degree. And that forced him then to have to to play catch up a little bit. Um, he also one of the great misnomers. And I know we use this phrase a few, few times in the book is that he is the quiet beetle. He is a very gregarious person. He is not quiet. Right. He's actually quite talkative. And uh, and, uh, you know, people who knew him can tell you that he could pontificate with the best of them, <laughs> you know. And uh, and so uh, I, I, I suppose that section is also useful uh, just for the simple fact that it's debunking uh, some of those issues. Yeah, I mean, Eric Idle, who was a friend of George's, has, has gone on record as saying, you know, George would never shut up. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it is it is very much fighting the myth. And there are a lot of myths that, that I think we busted or, or half busted in this in this book. Um, and, you know, going into those early years and talking about the development is, is a big part. It's very important to, you know, these are kind of. I would say these are their masterworks, you know, all things must pass in Layla mm -hmm. for these two artists. I'm sure people love cloud nine. I'm sure people love, you know, living in a material world. I'm sure there are a lot of their Clapton albums people love, but I feel like if, if you can be objective in any sense about, about, you know, people's careers, these two seem to be the ones that, that have the most magnetic pull to them. You know, we keep going back to them. You always look back to these albums. Yeah. And right. and so, you know, in that sense, it's important to look at, you know, how they got here and who these who these two people were. Um, I think the uh, the good example. Well, my favorite my favorite example is this story that I think a lot of people will have heard before, but it really hits home. What you guys are talking about is the I don't like your tie um, anecdote. <laughs> yeah. Um, where he meets George Martin for the first time and comes out with that. I mean, that if anything, 
sort of squashes the quiet beetle stereotype. That's that's got to be yeah. It. That's right. A wallflower doesn't do that. No. Right. Right. <laughs> and I mean the the thing that my favorite sort of story between George and Eric is right toward the very beginning where uh, you know George sees him and they're in a club and he sees him and he his first thought is that guy looks lonely. We should invite him to hang out with us. And it's just such a sensitive response. You know, to me, it just opens up this whole world of like, okay, who is the George Harrison guy that we think we know? And then as, you know, as you begin reading more about him and I, I feel like I've read so much about George in, in the process of doing this, this comes up again and again, his generosity of spirit, you know, obviously he could be stingy in other ways, but I think a lot of people talk about how generous George could be and how, how thoughtful he was. Yeah, I, I, that comes across um, in in droves, especially as sort of as the book goes on, and uh, as we you know we'll talk about the recording uh, the recording sessions. I mean, he's if if you could describe someone as being generous in a recording, I think he's definitely generous in those sessions. Um, I'm interested in the um, the song "Cry for a Shadow." I had no idea. I, I mean, I don't, I haven't, I haven't actually heard the song, but. I didn't realize that George was even thinking about writing at that time, or is that just the random one-off that happened? I mean, that's uh, you know, that's early uh, Harrison Lynn <laughs> doing a shadow, you know, doing, doing the shadows, doing kind of an instrumental, like, Oh, you know, the shadows do instrumental guitar um, tunes. So we'll do one too. Um, I mean, but that, that goes back to what Ken was saying about, how they were all sort of working together. It's once it becomes this walled off thing of Lennon and McCartney, then George is sort of pushed to the side. And I think, I mean, I, as, as Ken was talking a minute ago, I, I had this thought of like, okay, what was pretend for a moment in a weird alternate universe that Lennon and McCartney is, you know, they're not a self-contained kind of songwriting unit that as a band, George Martin is finding songs and they do, how do you do it? And they do, you know, they do, songs that he picks up from Tin Pan Alley. And, you know, in that, in that sense, George and John and Paul are all still equals because if it's like Hamburg and you, and you sort of transpose that over into the studio, they're all, they all have their, you know, individual showcases for songs. So, you know, I, to me, that's, that's kind of part of that like that those early days where there there isn't this clear boundary of like here we're going to be this this songwriting team that developed over time and then it it really took off once they be once it became commercially popular that's what george martin was going to give his attention to yeah no i I understand that and it seems um I, i can't remember the exact um sort of passage that you guys wrote but it was something along the lines of Lennon and McCartney as a duo was just so much easier to deal with. Whereas as soon as it's three, three writers, it becomes very complicated. And, um, you know, it's almost not that, um, Ringo and George were, were just, just along for the ride, you know, they were contributing musically enormously, but they, that needed to be the perception, especially in the early days while they were, you know, it's easy for the public to digest that it's just these two writing songs and, um, they're the, they're the front people, if you like. Right. If we flip over to to Eric, because it's it's a you know Eric Clapton is probably somebody that people will know 
you know, obviously he's he's um, got a huge history behind him, but uh, and sort of um, you know everybody will know Layla and the Unplugged album and and be familiar with his his work, but not necessarily has as um, into his life story as as a uh, sort of people are necessarily into the Beatles stuff. Um, he had quite a dysfunctional upbringing, I guess. Ken, this is did did you cover? Were you covering Eric's life? So he he his upbringing was extremely dysfunctional and he seemed to find solace in in uh, sort of playing guitar and blues music absolutely i mean his his early life is a disaster area um by his and he's very frank about it in his uh what i thought was his excellent autobiography but he's very frank about just what a what a, what a terrible experience it was. And it's the opposite of, you know, George Harrison, right? Um, it, it really is, you know, George is, uh, <laughs> you know, George is, is come, has this just almost idyllic upbringing. And Eric is, uh, Eric is just fraught with family dysfunction and, you know, it affects him deeply. Uh, in fact, it's why, to go back to what Jason said earlier, it's why George recognizes, because he was raised so differently, this innate loneliness that existed inside of Eric and wanted to do something about it, being a good person. Yeah, it seems, I mean, I'd, how old, how, how, what's the age difference between them? Is there a couple of years difference? At most, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it seemed... I mean, I might be sort of jumping to conclusions, but something that that struck me um, reading about both of their experiences um, sort of early on in music is uh, Eric lost himself in music as a way to escape his dysfunctional upbringing. Um, And, you know, he he will have almost as a meditative thing, you know, I'm, again, I'm sort of, writing writing that myself but sort of he he will have played guitar as a way of of uh, closing his mind off to that and george i feel may have done the same thing in songwriting um away from lennon and mccartney when that whole early sort of beatles thing was happening he may well have i i feel as though he closed off and started to focus in on songwriting because it was a way of you know, he had the space then to to sort of spend that time doing it because it was all about Lennon and McCartney. And I feel that they both became quite introspective people um, at, uh, you know, at different times within their early life, which led them to, which is, you know, I think probably one of the reasons why they why they got on so well. I, yeah, I think they were both very introspective. Uh, I mean, all the Beatles were introspective too, uh, to some extent. but. Um, yeah, I, George. As you were saying that, I, I I was just thinking, you know, if you even if you look at George's early songs, uh, "Don't Bother Me," that's such a George Harrison song. Like no one's going to mistake that for Lennon McCartney, and he he seemed to be incapable of of just writing a straight, you know, simple pop tune at that time. When he would try, it really didn't come off that well. Um, but when he would invest something with his personality and his sort of worldview, that's where you really saw something unique. And it was very, very different from the way John and Paul were writing. Um, so, you know, he, he's introspective and at the same time he's taking that introspection and he's, he's 
he's putting a very distinctive stamp on what he's saying. Um, but more, I think more to your, to your point, he's, you know, they are both very introspective and, you know, obviously coming from very different backgrounds they you know, they saw something in each other that they connected with. And, you know, first it was music and then, but I, you know, I think there's some other personality aspect in here that, you know, they were drawn to each other and they could relate in a way, you know, I think George was very skeptical of the whole, you know, pop star thing. And Eric is obviously rejecting this, uh, you know, the whole, I doesn't want to be in a, a band is playing pop tunes. He wants to play blues. I think they're, they're both sort of casting a side eye at this going like, oh, I'm not so sure about this, you know, this pop star thing, even though they are pop stars and they are stuck in this, this very rarefied atmosphere uh, of these, of people who, you know, know each other in this scene. What was them? Um, I mean, I know, I know Eric and George met at Hammersmith Odeon in 64, but there's the um, the story of of um, di- Eric describing um, the Beatles as a as well. He, he's called them. I can't remember exactly what exactly what he described, but essentially he, disco- he described them as wankers. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I thought that's. I mean, he's if nothing illustrates how mixed up he was. That that's it. Like he seems to, on the one hand, kind of respect them, but on the other hand, doesn't get on with what they're doing and. I can't quite work it out. Ken, I think you had a good comment about that uh, regarding the way Eric interacted or how he, how he responded to Lennon and McCartney versus how he responded to George. Wow. I'm totally blanking on it. The, well, the, you know, he, he's, he, he was wary of Lennon and he saw Paul as just like kind of, you know, showbiz guy. Sure. And uh, yeah, you're right. Thank you. Um, That's right. He, that first meeting, he almost printed them. He did not like John Lennon's um, uh, almost flippant attitude about things. Um, You know, I've, I've done a little amateur psychological sleuthing and I sometimes think, well, maybe it was because he too uh, was born of uh, significantly dysfunctional family. Although John Lennon tried to cover it up a lot. And, and say that it was normal at various points in his life, which is completely understandable uh, with circumstances such as those. Um, so he almost prints John Lennon as this kind of flippant person and is wary of him. Uh, Paul, feel, he felt like Paul came on too strong and it was George who seemed the most real to him. And of course they could talk about guitars in a way that felt collegial and uh, it was always the thing that excited George. I, I was telling my students last night in class, um, you know, that famous moment when when Brian finally wrestles a contract out of George Martin, Brian Epstein, and, and they send telegrams to him, right? John and Paul's are basically, when are we going to be millionaires? And George's is, we got to buy new guitars. <laughs> it just goes right into practical musicianship. You know, let's uh, got to grow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, uh, th- I mean, there seems to be so many levels that they they are likely to get on George and Eric. When you talk about, you know, they've got guitars. They, you know, I know that. Um, well, they are. I think they're both spiritual in a way, and and they, yeah, all 
there's so many, so many sort of uh, sort of tributaries to the to their um, to their relationship. I think it was also quite interesting the way that you guys painted the scene um, towards the the back end of the '60s and the pressure that Eric felt from all of that. Um, you know how in '67 um, Sergeant Pepper's came out and uh, and and also oh, I mean previous to that uh, Eric met. Jimi Hendrix and you know he's clearly a, quite an anxious person in a in a way and you can see how and and also the um uh music from the big pink the band um came out too in 68 and you can sort of you can sense this sort of mounting <laughs> anxiety within him um that he's uh you know there's all this incredible groundbreaking music going on around him and I kind of enjoyed how you guys built that and built that up because it, it sort of put it all into perspective that, you know, that it culminated in, um, you know, in what was to come. Yeah. And I, you know, that, that, uh, carries through to, uh, end of 69 when Eric gets basically gets George on tour with Delaney and Bonnie. Um, you know, they were both hot on Delaney and Bonnie. They were both hot on the band. I mean, that the, the impact of the band at this time is massive, just in music, like people are responding to this in a, in a very, very strong way. And, uh, you know, they, they go on the Delaney and Bonnie tour in December 69. And, you know, again, that's another instance of them bonding, but it's also a case of them both having this experience in a group setting where they don't have to be, you know, the star, they don't have to be right up front. They can just kind of hang back and play guitar and be with this kind of raucous group of people who are doing music that's exciting to them. And you know, George, you know, they finished Abbey Road. Something is becoming a hit. Uh, it's becoming a standard practically, even, even already before the end of the year. And, you know, but he's happy to be out of the pressure of the Beatles. And Eric is happy to just to sort of play with this group of people that he feels like he has, he has a, some sort of camaraderie with, and he likes the, you know, they both like the energy of that group. Um, so, you know, I think that's, uh, you know, that's a critical moment for them. Um, so many, you know, we, we talk a lot about this in the book, but so many things in the following year kind of flow out of that from, you know, the, the first Eric Clapton album at the beginning of the year to, um, you know, all things must pass to Layla, all of which share these musicians that, you know, some of those musicians were on that tour. There's a, a right and, oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. Go on. I, I would only add that, you know, and this, this kind of root sound that the band had now Delaney and Bonnie. I mean, what's really cool is at a certain level, Clapton and Harrison are birthing what will be the music of the seventies. Yeah. You know, it's certainly uh, on the rock and roll front. Yeah, there's this, there's this, that way. Yeah. there's this sense of scope of like, you know, Layla's a double album and All Things Was Passed is a triple album. And it's just sort of like this big, uh, you know, worldview of, of, you know, you can do these massive, ambitious projects and look how this can turn out, you know. How important was the Delaney and Bonnie tour in in building confidence for for both? Well, particularly Eric, but as, uh, for George as well. Well, yeah, for Eric, you know, uh, he his first album comes out of this, and you know, 
Delaney is driving a lot of that. I, I think he, you know, he, we talk about this too, that he wants to keep Eric in the band as much as he can, but he's also encouraging him to have a, to do this solo album, which is really more of a Delaney album. You know, it's, it's, he's driving it. Um, it's his sound, but uh, it, you know, it does give Eric something. It gives, it gives him an experience of doing this and feeling like, okay, he can take that step. He can be the front man. He can be a solo artist. And for George, it's more, you know, he's, he's got a little vacation uh, from, <laughs> from being in the Beatles, but um, you know, he's also experiencing the same kind of camaraderie that he experienced the year before in 68, when he's hanging out with Dylan and the band in, uh, in Woodstock. And he, you know, he's not getting that kind of experience with the Beatles. So here's a large group of people with Blaney and Bonnie, this, this cast of very dynamic characters and you know, we'll see that once we get into All Things Must Pass is that he, you know, he has the same large cast of characters, not the same people, but he has the same type of dynamic. Um, and so, you know, I, th I think it was just another signpost along the way for him where he's like, yeah, this is, you know, this is what I want. This is, he, he the, the Beatles are a closed unit. And I think he wanted something that was a little more fluid and, and could invite people in and, you know, what, what allow for, you know, we talk about generosity, allow for a lot more input from different people. You, you mentioned the Beatles being a closed unit. What one thing I found particularly interesting was that Eric um, was one of the only people to, to sort of infiltrate <laughs> that closed unit in playing on while my guitar gently weeps. Um, that's a, that's pretty, uh, you know, it's a pretty important contribution <laughs> in, in terms of, uh, you know, in terms of sort of uh, er Eric's, uh, the way he was viewed in, at that time, um, you know, and the way he was sort of hanging around um, throughout that whole sort of White Album period, he was he's sort of ever present in George's life. They, you know, they lived near each other. They were really close friends and, and, then Eric played on <laughs> on a Beatles track, which not apart from you know sort of session musicians playing uh, orchestra parts and things like that. Not many people um, had the honor of playing on a Beatles record, right? Like something that would stamp their personality um, on the record. Session yeah. musicians are playing what they're told to play, but uh, you know this and and Billy Preston um, and Nicky Hopkins on you know the. the keyboard on revolution they're putting a distinctive part of their personality on those records so yeah that that is an unusual unusual thing whereas you know contrast with all things must pass is that is that you know a lot of people are sort of putting their their input into this record george is still directing it and he has i think ultimate control over these arrangements um and the sound of each song along with you know phil specter's input but he is allowing other people to contribute and and uh you know that to me that's that's such a big contrast with the way the beatles worked it was like they were they were a four piece five piece with george martin um with you know rare guest appearances Okay, so there we have it. Part one of my conversation with Ken Womack and Jason Kruper. Um, as I always say, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Um, I quite like geeking out um, 
in a uh, sort of musicology way about these people. So, uh, and it's something a little different. I know it's not strictly um, all studio related, but I, it's something a little different and I couldn't resist getting these guys on. Um, it was a, yeah, it's just a, it's a fantastic book. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I recommend you go and check it out. Uh, the title of it again is All Things Must Pass Away, Harrison Clapton and Other Assorted Love Songs. Um, you can buy it on Amazon in the UK uh, and in the US. I don't know if it's in bookshops here in the UK. Um, I bought mine on Amazon. Um, but if you're in the US, it's certainly in uh, local bookstores. So you can go and check that out there. Um, and I'll be back with part two next week. Um, that just leaves me to say, if you would like to uh, get in touch with me, you can do that. My website is allyouneedisdrums.com. Uh, if you'd like to buy a lovely mug to support the podcast, you can do that at the shop that's on the website. Um, I would like to thank everybody that has bought a mug already. I really appreciate the support. Um, also, yeah, do go and check out Jason Cooper's podcast, Recording the Beatles. I'm pretty sure if you listen to this podcast, you will have done already. But if you haven't, for whatever reason, go and check it out. It is a masterpiece. Um, so, yeah, thank you to Rory uh, Hancock for uploading the podcast and sorting all the bits out for it and just generally being fantastic. Thank you to Joe Kane for the intro and outro music to this podcast. And thank you to David Henshaw for the lovely artwork he supplies. Uh, and I will see you all next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.